Last week, uh, I introduced to you uh, the book of Revelation. We're, gonna, we're on a journey uh, headed through as far as we can go. I won't say that we'll uh, conquer every passage, but we'll do our best to, to look at this and, and see what it's saying. And so that's what I want to do this morning, make sure you hear uh, what the Lord is saying to you. You'll notice the, the subtitle of the, under the big heading is What the Spirit is Saying to the Churches, and there's a reason I've chosen that as a subheading. Well, last week I introduced to you the comparison uh, between the book of Exodus and the book of Revelation. I did so, and I'm going to do that again this morning to help you get it in your mind that every book of the Bible has a backstory. We call it the context, and that context helps, helps us to understand what's going on in the book. In the book of Exodus, God's people are suffering. They are suffering because God has an enemy. His name is Satan. And that enemy is personified in the book of Exodus through a person named Pharaoh. In Egypt, they hate God's people. That hatred, the fountainhead of that hatred, is Pharaoh himself. So as a result of that, in, in the process of delivering his people, God supernaturally reveals himself to Moses. He appeared to him in a burning bush. And he lets Moses know that he has a plan to deliver his people. And his plan is to bring them to himself and to deliver them to a land that he has promised. In order to accomplish that purpose, God will pour out a series of judgments on the kingdom of the enemy. But God's people will be protected from those judgments. The worst of those judgments, or plagues as they're called in the book of Exodus, is that final one where uh, it's called the plague of the firstborn. The death angel is going to pass over, and the firstborn in every house is going to die, even in the house of Pharaoh, even in the house of God's own people, if they don't do one thing that God has told them to do, and that is to take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost of their house. And so when that judgment passed on, it struck every home. The Bible says in the home of every Egyptian there was weeping, but there was no weeping in the homes and hearts of God's people because they had placed the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their house. The book of Revelation has a similar backstory or a context. The book of Revelation concerns the suffering of God's people, of God's servants, the church, in the book of Revelation, God has an enemy. That enemy is Satan. In John's day, that enemy is personified in a person. As a matter of fact, he's personified in his hatred against the church in, in people and governments and powers all throughout history. But at the end of history, the Bible says that Satan himself is going to be incarnated or personified in that person called the Antichrist or the Beast. But the book also looks ahead across the ages to, the la to, to those last days uh, when God's people are suffering. God's plan is to deliver them, to bring them to himself, to the place that he has promised. In order, in, and in order to accomplish that, what God will do is God will pour out a series of judgments on the kingdom of the enemy. God's people will be protected and they will be protected the way they protect themselves in the book of Revelation is to wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. It is a beautiful story. It's a beautiful picture. 
And so the book of Revelation should not be a scary book to you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. In fact, it's an encouraging book. It's a hopeful book. It shows us how God is in control. But as John wrote the book, that's not the way God's people felt. God's people were discouraged. John himself is discouraged. John is a castaway on the Isle of Patmos. He's in exile for his sharing of the gospel, for his Christian faith. The church is in trouble. He's in trouble. The church is weary and disheartened and discouraged, and so is John. And that may be the way you've come to church today, a little downhearted, a little discouraged. The, the enemy of your soul seems to be prevailing in and around your life and in his church. So here is this message that God sent to his servants over 2,000 years ago, and it remains the message that God is sending to us today. We pick up in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 5. We're going to cover through verse 8 today. Some of these verses we read last week, but we'll read them again. Here it is. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. And he testified to all that, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed are those who, or blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And then John takes up his pen after he receives this commission from the Lord and he begins to write. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's a tremendous message, a tremendous passage. So right there in verse 5, there's a message for the church for their day, but there's also a message for the church in our day, in this day, when it seems that the church is in trouble, that the church is in danger, that when the enemies of the church seem to prevail through earthly kings and earthly governments, but look at who Jesus is, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Number one, here's the first point in the message today, and that is that Revelation is a message to the church, for the church, about the church, and that's why I've entitled this series, What the Spirit is Saying to the Churches. How do we know that it's a message to the church? Well, if you'll notice in verse 1, it says that God intended for Jesus to show these things to his servants. That was God's assignment to Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. So Jesus immediately sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. John then immediately takes the message and delivers it to the seven churches in Asia. Now I'm trying to establish to you that this is a message for the church first, the church of John's day. One of the rules of biblical interpretation is you always try to understand what the Bible was saying to the people who got the message. 
If you want to understand the book of Jeremiah, you need to understand the times of Jeremiah, the historical context of Jeremiah, and what God was saying to the people of Jeremiah's day through Jeremiah himself. That's the best way to understand the book of Revelation is first to hear it through the ears of John's readers. God meant it's a message to them first, but it's a message to the church down through the ages in our common struggle, the church's common struggle against the world and the flesh and the devil. Now, one of the first questions we might have is why did John address address this to only seven churches. Now remember, last week I told you that these numbers in the book of Revelation always mean something. And I want to show you first about this number seven. Now last week we said it's used 55 times in the book of Revelation. It's used a number of times throughout the New Testament. And every time the number seven is used in the New Testament, it never means only seven. It means a, a fullness or a completeness. Let me show you an example. A perfect example of that, perhaps the best one in the New Testament, is when G Peter came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, he said, suppose I have a beef with my brother and I, and I need to forgive him. How many times do I forgive him? And, and, and it'll be enough. Is seven times enough? Well, seven was a number that meant even to Peter fullness or completeness and Jesus it meant that to Jesus but Peter was using it in a rather literal way is seven enough will that be enough and do I not have to forgive him anymore and Jesus then multiplied that number he said I say not to you seven times but 70 times seven now if you read that and say I only have to forgive my wife or my wife only has to forgive me 490 times I had a conversation today with another man and we realized that's not going to be nearly enough times. We're going to need some more times than that. Our wives are, maybe we are too. Jesus wasn't making that literal. That was a symbolic way of, of multiplying fullness to an either, even greater fullness. Well, uh, another example of that might also be when uh, Jesus told the story about the man who had the spirit and he said, uh, then the spirit leaves that man and, and, and another, uh, the spirit comes back and he finds that house empty and he goes and he gets seven more. Why does Jesus use the word seven? Because seven is fullness, completeness. And, the, and, and they come and live in that man's house and then the last state of that man is worse than the first. Or here's Mary Magdalene. You know Jesus cast out of her how many demons? Seven demons. Why seven? Because that she was completely, completely, fully possessed by demons and Jesus took care of that he can take that was not even the worst case scenario in scripture you had the other man who had the legion of demons and and we're not looking at literal numbers there but we're looking at pictures and symbols that tell us things and so we're doing the same thing here in the church with seven churches in Asia now the the Asia that John's talking about is the modern day area called Turkey the country of Turkey and he's writing to seven churches. But the problem is, we know there were more than seven churches at that time in that area. Now, when John writes, this is interesting, uh, it's like if I'm going to write a letter to the seven churches in George County or to churches in George County, send it first to Agricola and then send it to Heritage and then send it to, uh, I'm, walking up the, I'm walking up 613, then send it to, uh, to Union and uh, then send it to, uh, send it to uh, 
the Church of Christ there on, on 613, uh, and then there's an Assembly of God on 613, and then come on up to Loosedale, and then go around to the Methodist, First Baptist Loosedale, then go to the Methodist Church, go to Journey, and, but it's just simply that way. They're following a route, following the exact route by which someone would have traveled back and forth between these churches. It was a circular route, and they're in the exact order of the road that was traveled. But there are more than seven there. How do we know that? Because we have a letter to one of them in the New Testament. It's called the book of Colossians. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Colossae, which was also in Asia Minor. And Paul mentioned one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation in his letter to Colossae. And he mentioned another church, which means at least there were nine. And he mentions another church, may have been another church, in, a, in, a, in another person's house. Let me just read you Colossians chapter 4, verses 13 and following. And he's talking about uh, Epaphras, a guy who, was, who, had, who had been good for the church and loved the church. He said, For I testify for him that he is a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea, that's one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and Hierapolis, which is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. Luke, the, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. Also Demas, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. For, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans that we don't know anything about. And the Colossians read his letter. And the, and the people in Colossians read his letter to the Laodiceans. So there were more than seven churches. Seven, even in the book of Revelation, is not talking about just seven churches, but to all the church. And it's not talking about just seven churches in a historical setting, but to the whole church, to the whole church throughout all time, to all of us. So, and each letter ends with this emphasis, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. God is speaking to all of us. God has a message for us. Second, when we get down in verse 4, John mentions the seven spirits that are before the throne. What did he mean by that? Paul clearly taught in the book of Ephesians that there is one Spirit of God. In verse 4 he says, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So what does John mean when he talks about the seven spirits of God? Well, there's a sevenfold characteristic of God's Spirit in the book of Isaiah, but it's talking about the one Spirit. But obviously here he's talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 1, he talks about Jesus having the seven spirits of God, the fullness of God's Spirit. John said in chapter 3, verse 34, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Only he who has the fullness of God's Spirit can give the Spirit without measure. So I just want you to see it has a meaning beyond the literal number itself, and that should be easy enough to see just from the history of the New Testament. Now remember, the title of this book, as it's written, and it's written in Greek, and so the title of it in Greek is Apocalypsis, and that word means, the definition of that word, is the supernatural revelation of divine truths unknown to men and incapable of being discovered by them. So this is something unknown to us and incapable of being discovered by us. But now, God has given it to Jesus Christ 
to show to his servants, to show to the church. But before John can tell us more, before he can even start the story of what God has shown him, before he can begin the journey of telling us these things, he has to stop for a minute. Look at verse 5. He says, in the middle of verse 5, he says, to him who loved, who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. And here's number two. Revelation is intended to remind the church of Christ's love and his sovereignty. Now, most people believe that John is an old man when he writes this book. He has to be because he was a young man when Jesus was crucified, and this is long, long later. Probably he's in his 90s now. He's feeble and weak, but his spiritual vigor is as fresh and as vital as ever. And the one thing that overwhelmed him as he began to think about all this, and the thought of God choosing him for this, is that he says he loves us. He loves us. And John wants, he wanted the people there in those churches in that area who were suffering, he wanted them to think about this. He wants you to think about it. You in the church, you in your problems, you facing persecution, you facing sickness, you facing tribulation, you as, he sit, you as you sit here today in your circumstances, they were wondering, as you sometimes wonder, does Jesus know what's going on in my life? Does he care? And John shouts as he begins to write, he loves us. He loves us, and he released us from our sins, me from my sins, you from your sins. He released us from the power of our sin and the penalty of our sin and the guilt of our sin by his blood. And immediately, John's mind goes back to the cross. He remembers those awful moments. He remembers the sorrow and the suffering and the surprise that came three days later when it was apparent that Jesus had conquered the tomb. To him who loves us, and it's written in the present tense, not he loved us in the past, but he loves you right now. You say, how can he love me right now? You might even be thinking that as a Christian. You say, I've been a Christian for a long, long time, but I know my life is not what it ought to be. I know my own heart, and I just feel really distant from God now. How in the world could he love me? How could he love me in my sin, the way I've been living, the way I've been thinking, the way I've been walking? I remind you that as he writes letters to these churches, he addresses them forthrightly, and some of them are really doing bad. Some of them are not at all what he wants them to be. And to one of them, he said, Whom I love, I rebuke, and I chasten. I still love you. I want you to be different. I want you to do better. And sometimes I might poke my finger in your heart and make your heart hurt, make you feel guilty. Because I want you to come back to me. But one of the things I don't ever want you to forget, even when I rebuke you and chasten you, is that I love you. John said he loves us. Can you imagine that? It so overwhelms him. So we pick up again in verse 5. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. He's talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole New Testament looks forward to that event. So here's number three. The book of Revelation is a reminder that Jesus has not forgotten his church. He is coming for his church. I shared with the early service this morning something I remember fondly about my pastor who baptized me. 
when I was just eight years old. His name was Brother John Merck. Brother John had a saying he used to say. He had lots of sayings. But one of the things sometimes he would stand up and say, and I'll do my best to say it in the way he said it. He said, some people say the church is going to the dogs. It's a lie. It's going to heaven when Jesus comes. And he'd laugh when he said it, said it and you know, I, I would always smile when, when I heard it. It's a great assurance. And the assurance is, hey, it may, it may look bad for you. You may be discouraged. The church may be discouraged. But Jesus is coming for his church. By the way, this is not a future event as John presents it. He writes this in the present tense. You say, what does that mean? What are you trying to say? Well, if you read it in your King James Version, it says, Behold, he cometh. Well, there's another behold, he cometh. Except it's in the 25th chapter of Matthew as Jesus tells a story about a wedding that's about to take place. And uh, the way weddings took place in those days, they didn't send out little engraved invitations that said, we request the honor of your presence at the marriage of at, on June the 13th at 7 o'clock p.m. at the First Baptist Church of Loosedale. No, the way weddings were held then was the bridegroom's coming. When he gets here, the wedding's going to start. You know, travel's a little uncertain. He could come tomorrow. He couldn't come the next day. It may be, he may be a day late, but he's coming. But as soon as the bridegroom gets here, the wedding's going to start. And so there were ten young girls. They're going to be in the wedding. And they're giggling about being in the wedding. They're all excited about being in the wedding. And, and one of their responsibilities is to be ready for the wedding. They've got to get oil in their lamps. And so they've got to make preparation. Well, some of them said, you know, the bridegroom's coming. He could come today. Five of them said that, and they were ready. Five of them said, well, the bridegroom's coming, but it's probably going to be a little while now. We don't have anything to worry about, so we don't have to get ready. And so while they dilly-dallied around, there was a big announcement. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And you know what that meant in, in, the, in the story that Jesus told? It meant he's here. It's, it's about to start. And this is the announcement as John gives it. Behold, he cometh. He's on his way. He's coming. He's coming for his church. Be encouraged. Lift up your head. Your redemption draws nigh. So this is the message that comes to the church. And we need to be ready for that day. It comes to the discouraged believer, to the church that feels defeated by powerful uh, forces and political forces that are coming against the church today, to you in the grip of your grief or in the grip of your guilt, to you who feel caught in the grip of Satan's power, comes this message from the Lord Jesus Christ to you, from the ruler of the kings of the earth. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was, who is to come, the Almighty. Now, uh, many of your Bibles, this is a written in red verse, is it not? This is an interesting verse. It's interesting because of what he says here. Uh, let's suppose all history is a book. And, and let's suppose like, uh, like history, that book is in progress. It is being written. So what God is saying here, what the Bible is saying here is, he's saying, I'm the author and finisher of history. The Alpha and the Omega, that's one of the things he's saying. I'm the author and finisher of history. I'm the originator and the terminator but he's also saying something else. This is, a, this is an expression called a merism. And when you put the, something on the beginning and something on the end, the alpha, by the way, is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, like our A. The omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet, like our Z. 
And so God is saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and I am everything in between. I am sovereign over all of history, over your history. He's sovereign over your history, over my history, over the history of his church, over the history of the church throughout the ages. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And what John does here is he does something interesting. He pulls, out of, he pulls a word out of the contemporary world of his day, and he plants it here. It's only found two times in the New Testament, only once outside the book of Revelation. In the world of, of that day, here's the word in you might, the way you might like to think of it. Sometimes we refer to our president as the commander-in-chief. And some people say about the president, whether it's true or not, but they make this statement, he's the most powerful man on earth, the president of the United States. And so in the world of John's day, the most powerful person on the earth was the Roman emperor. He was the ruler of everything. He was in charge, large and in charge, the Roman emperor was. And he was making, he hated the church in John's time. And he was making that hatred pretty well known. They were feeling the heat of his hatred. And he was called, the word they gave him was Pantocrator. That was the word they called him. He's the Pantocrator. He is the ruler of everything. He's the commander in chief. He's the man in charge. Well, John takes that word and he sticks it right here in this verse. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Pantocrator. I am the one who's in control. I am the one who's sovereign over the circumstances that you face. And so finally, last point in the message, Revelation reveals that there is no person or power more powerful than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I'm the Almighty. I'm the ruler of the kings of the earth. I'm in charge of whatever troubles you. I'm sovereign over everything that is going on. There's no earthly power that exceeds my power. No power can prevail against my church because I am the Pantocrator. I am the Almighty. I'm the ruler of the kings of the earth, the ruler of creation. And so he, like he knew about his church then, he knows who you are. He knows where you are. And he knows what you need. That is true today about the people that sit in this church. He knew everything about every church that he wrote to in the book of Revelation. And he knows everything about you and everything about me. And this is what he said to them. And this is what he's saying to you. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray.